Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of beating that dead horse so long we actually reached our 500th episode. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, wow. to Gaming on the Frontier. <laughs> And we are excited as as and all that other stuff to be here because for some of us, this has been a very, very long journey. Even though it, we're the 500th episode, our uh, pod site says that we've done more than that. And yet we take every episode we normally record. It's a two-hour episode split into two. So theoretically, we've only done about 250 topics, but still, you know, oh. the first year that I was, that it was even a last past a year. I figured we would be done with our topics by the end of the year. And that would be it. And we just say, look what we did. Isn't this great? Now let's go on to the next edition of Fringeworthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those of you who are, uh, who are not that familiar with uh, gaming on the frontier, uh, we started off as the Fringeworthy podcast because yep. it was my dream to uh, produce a product that would be able to enhance the game Fringeworthy. I considered the flagship product of the TriTac Games Company uh, up in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I always felt that there wasn't enough development of this game. I had already done some stuff for Bureau 13. I was trying to put out a uh, newsletter um, and it was very hard, you know, because you had to get, it's just very hard to put out actual physical product. And I said, there's got to be some way of getting this information out to the fans in a faster way. We even had news groups, Yahoo groups, uh, which have now closed down, and I have all that in case anybody needs it. They can contact me, and I can send you all the uh, the messages from those groups. After hearing a bunch of gaming podcasts, I said, let's do one for Fringeworthy. And I roped in Trav and John Ryer and Peter Bryant. Who well, now- no, 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 uh, Bruce. I yeah. came in, me and Jay came in halfway through season two. It was originally just you, you John, and Blix. Oh, you're right. Okay, but anyways, we yeah. those guys in. They were all huge fans. John has a, had actually had more experience with Fringeworthy than me, being part of Richard's original playtesting group back in the, the '80s. When the Order of Leibowitz, yeah. Uh, so we started this, you know, primarily uh, uh, primarily to enhance the game, cover all the areas we thought had never really been developed, 
and it's blossomed uh, from there into the other TriTac products, into speaking about basically gaming in general. But we still still consider ourselves to be a topic oriented podcast because we I personally think that it's an easier way for you our listeners to be able to get the most value because you can search our topics for whatever things interest you whether it be pirates whether it be faster and light travel whether it be vampires or equipment or uh, interdimensional exploration whatever it might be you can search at the Podbean site, and you can usually find at least a couple of episodes that specifically are toward what you're interested in. And then hopefully you'll branch out and listen to all five, all the rest of the 500 episodes and yeah, the, yeah. the actual play episodes recorded and the Sunday Skyper episodes we brought over. I, I know we advertised it, but did we actually bring over any of the monkey, you know, monkey stole my jetpack people? Uh, I know John did a lot of bumpers for them, but I don't remember if there are any episodes of them. Yeah, because uh, we also did for the TriTac game Hardwire Hinterland, we did an actual play episode, uh, which was a fiasco tool set that John had written. Oh, yes. Yes. The, I remember uh, that one. I, the, uh, the, uh, the Brass Monkey Ball. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, yeah, yes, this is a play on words, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, thanks, everybody, who has listened to us all these years. You are the best, except for my co-hosts, who are definitely the best, uh, who stuck Thank with you. me all this time and has been hugely supportive. Even edited the podcast now. Uh, so I, I actually yeah. have to do a few other things in my life because, you know, it's, it's gone through a lot of things. I mean, uh, I, uh, we, we all had to learn how to do this. Uh, we didn't start as uh, communication uh, uh, experts or anything like that. We, we went through a lot of microphones, a lot of headsets, a lot of different oh, yeah. of Skype. <laughs> and uh, now a lot of we- different uh, Skype recording calls. Yeah. Yeah. And now here we are. Uh, recording live our 500th episode we are actually going to record you know uh, do a regular we're doing a regular podcast it's not just us chewing the fat about the past as so many of these 500 episodes are but we did want to basically go back to the very beginning because uh, i went over to the, the the yahoo group that i started in 1998 22 years ago and I looked at the very first, uh, yeah, I, I looked at the, and it's one of the reasons why we did the podcast. I looked at, I listed a whole bunch of questions that we, I said we should answer in the next edition of, uh, of Fringeworthy, which of course was the D20 edition, uh, which we use D20 Modern for. And uh, I said, these questions need to be answered. And I wanted to go over them to see whether or not we actually had answered them. And uh, of course, the you know the it's not going to surprise anybody when I say a lot of them we haven't. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to the list. Let's see here. I want to include events that will come in the future where the, the explorers learn of secrets of the fringe baths that have up till now been undiscovered. So, if there are any additional things that we haven't talked about, any secrets of the fringe path. We're definitely going to unload them here, but I'm not sure I know anymore. Since we've already told you about how you can make anybody fringeworthy, right? Have we ever mentioned that? I think we did. 
the one way I know of is holding on to a crystal key for a year gives you a 1% chance cumulative. I thought it was 5% chance cumulative. Was it five? Nope, one. One percent chance. It's one. Yeah. It's one. So, I mean, after 20 years of, of, of adventuring, you have a 20% chance of, of being friendly, but it actually isn't. It's actually higher because you have a 20% and a 19 and an 18 and a 17 and a 16, and that actually adds up to considerably more than 20, 20%. It's probably closer to 30. So let's go ahead and go to those original questions of things I said we were going to do. So... Uh, now, for those of you who don't know what Fringeworthy is, in my mind, it's the greatest uh, role-playing game that's ever been created because every role-playing game that's ever been created can be played inside that game. Yep. But it's also the greatest role-playing game because it, nothing has the scope of it, nothing has the flexibility. It's one of those games where you literally can do anything you want to do and change anything that you want. You are always encouraged to be flexible and, and creative as you wanted to be. When I first heard about Fringeworthy, Richard had come to visit me to be a guest at, at a convention in Huntington called MunchCon. He had brought with him some stuff for Fringeworthy, some of the, uh, the sheets, and he was going to show it off to people, and he showed me a little bit. I was like, I have no idea what I'm looking at because it had people that were, uh, you know, this furry critter staying in front of a big disc and, and people with machine guns and stuff. I had no idea what I was looking at. And he said, they're, he said what are they doing? He says, they're exploring the fringes of time and space. And I don't know about you, but I didn't know anything more after he said that than before he had said that. <laughs> it was only later on that I understood that this was exploration of alternate Earths. And this was way before Sliders or any of the other shows. So uh, they all this all predates it. And I just fell in love with this game and tried to run it whenever I could. But it was really hard because I didn't know how to run an international exploration game. I only knew how to run D&D. It was hard. And so that's one reason we made the podcast. We said, we want you guys to be as equipped as possible to run this game because it is unlike a lot all the other games that you played you know it, it's it's not going to be like anything you've ever done and so we wanted to make it easy so that's why we did it so in fringeworthy uh you go through a portal and you find yourself on a uh entering into a network of platforms that are connected by pathways and on each platform are more portals the portals that go to worlds are 25 feet wide the portals that go to pathways are 50 foot wide and it stretches like paper dolls connected together to infinite distance in either right and left directions so we used to say well the portals are positive or they're negative like if you were to do graphing on a graph paper so one of the questions was when are they going to lock down all the portals from negative 100 to positive 100 and see, because that seemed perfectly reasonable to me, that as you went out and explored and you had these keys that could lock the portals so only you could decide who went in and who went out of it, that you would do that. But as we, as we developed the game, we realized nobody would do that. First of all, it's impossible because even if you had the highest level crystal, it's not the only highest level crystal out there. And somebody else would come along and unlock that portal 
you know, so you'd be locking, they'd be unlocking behind you because they want to be able to do what they want to do. There were other people out on the French pass besides the explorers that were doing stuff. It'd be like you running to your neighborhood and putting padlocks on everybody's door in the neighborhood and expecting nobody to be bothered by it. <laughs> it was a silly question, but I didn't realize it at the time. Did you guys ever have that happen in your games that you basically locked a portal and someone came knocking at your door and said, hey, why did you do that? What, what's up? Who, who do you think you are? In my games, I didn't have anybody but I at at that time. We usually did early campaigns. Right. And that was true for a lot of people. They just went, they, they, they first started, they, the, the first six portals to the positive, and uh, when I say portals, I mean platforms, you know, uh, the alternate platforms primarily to the left and the, uh, the right, six platforms in each direction, seemed like a whole campaign for some people. And for some people, it was a whole campaign because that's why Richard only put those first six. Yeah, yeah. Sets of platforms in the book. I'm not sure he ever explored really any further than that in his demos and things like that when he was playtesting the game. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of room, yeah. I mean, when you ran into the um, competing exploration group, Teus, the uh, Victorians, don't you think they would have complained about you locking all the portals, especially their portal? <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this sort of thing never occurred to me. Uh, so when Richard came out with his first set of, of portal guides, which from positive 50 to negative 50, I was like shocked and amazed because, first of all, you know, I had done different things with a lot of these worlds. Secondly, is that I really had a wrong idea about how the, pla the, the, uh, the portals and pathways were laid out. I thought that every plat when you went to an alternate, it basically went to, you know, it, uh, it, all the roadways went to, like, other alternates. And, I, I mean, I thought it basically that was as far as it went, and all these alternates had originally just been like a big, huge flower. <laughs> and I didn't realize it was like a daisy chain because I guess that was stupid. <laughs> because when in the book it was, it, it was, it was written out that way, but I, I just didn't quite get it. This was in the days when the original book looked like it had been printed out on mimeograph. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that 83 <laughs> book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They used Zipatone badly, and they actually had to, uh, when they produced, their first supplement was, was called Portals Number Zero. It was essentially an errata. It did have a, a one adventure in it and one piece of equipment, but mostly what they were doing was they were saying, oh, here's all the charts we made unreadable by using Zipatone. And a lot of products are that way. I mean, so many people were out there producing these things in their homes, going down to the Kinkos that didn't exist, whatever photocopy place they could get their hands on. Yeah. Usually they, they would sneak in late at night and use the copiers at the universities and make up, you know, a hundred copies of their game and then go out to conventions in three states and sell them. And that's how, this this is how gaming started. Yeah. I, I realized that, you know, that AD&D was always the 600-pound gorilla in the, in the room. But really, gaming, to, for the rest of us, once you got into it, gaming was everybody else. It was this huge frothy, everybody trying new ideas and such. And, I, and I, I'm sad that gaming has become so... Um, Mainstream? 
I mean, they're more less likely to try new ideas because they're trying to make money off of it, really trying to make money. You know, originally a lot of people, they wanted their game to take off and make money, but they didn't know how to make money and they didn't know how to do layout. Making very bad illustrations and stealing stuff from Boris Vallejo <laughs> cover art off of... Frank Frazetta, yeah. There was so much uh, stuff that was going on where pirates, where they were pirating copyright violations going right and left everywhere. And they all had to, of course, clean that up if they didn't immediately die off. But there was just so many interesting ideas that people would do just to try things out and see how it would fly. So, And Richard was all part of that, and TriTac was all part of that. And that's one of the reasons I was excited, because I, I, I didn't know know how to get into gaming as far as the 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 publishing side of it and to me that seemed like something that you know i don't know people with 20 30 years of experience even though of course richard couldn't possibly have had 20 30 years of experience it just they just seemed like i don't know a, a level above us you know and so uh richard letting me do stuff for him was uh was basically uh you know my start in getting into like the whole publishing thing, doing this, you know, getting into any kind of production, and um, and and not and it didn't seem to me like a whole lot of other people were doing that, you know, giving people a real chance to uh, you know and work. In, I wouldn't say that Richard worked with me; he really didn't. You know, he basically just said, you know, just write up your stuff, you know, and if I can use it, I will, and if I can't, I won't. And and uh, so, but uh, he, at least he said that. You know, and I and I really appreciate that because in in the same time that this was going on, you had uh, tried to I'm sorry TSR that was doing things like saying you can submit your uh, your module to us, but if you do, it belongs to us. Not if we pay, not if we accept it and publish it, it belongs to us. If you even send it to us, it belongs to us. And that turned me off completely because I, I would have like made all kinds of modules for TSR if they'd been willing to do that. That's one reason why companies like Judges Guild and other things like that came into existence is that these were people that wanted to uh, produce their own products for D&D because, &D, it was, again, it was the biggest. That and Tunnels and Trolls uh, were the two biggest uh, role-playing games out there. Uh, followed pretty closely by uh, Traveler and then, you know, uh, and, and really nothing else uh, until Steve Jackson got some traction with GURPS. Yep, yep. And I was highly offended with GURPS because TriTac already was a universal role-playing system. How dare he call his game the generic <laughs> universal role-playing system? But, you know, hey, he, he, he coined the name first, you know, Richard, you know, Richard never published his like that, so it's not his fault, not a, not Steve Jackson's fault. Well, that is why I keep saying that TriTech Games is the best kept secret in role playing. Uh, the fan base is hardcore. I'm, I'm going to say this here, you know, we're, hardcore AF, and you all know what the AF means. And just, I mean, Rich would send, and and Bruce, you know this, Rich on his own dime, like moms would be writing, oh, my son's over in Iraq and he loved your games. You know, I saw something about, could you, you know, send him a letter? Rich would pack up a care package and he'd be getting pictures back of a bunch of our, our soldiers in Iraq or Afghanistan holding up like, you know, the FTL 2448 books and all that. And they'd play this on their off time. 
Right. So yeah, Rich just yeah yeah. Tritag Tritag Progs have have been played in uh, more uh, military bases throughout the world than any other game. I'm pretty sure of that. Even more than D and D and such. I mean, because it you know it, because it was a, a it was a more modern game. You got to use guns. You got to use RPGs and grenades and all those things and and uh, which those guys were doing. So yeah, they got to basically play what they knew. So for, and a lot of this and it informed his games. You know, various later versions of them because they had all these people sending him notes. And um, sometimes they would like, you know, take fact sheets that they had been given by their their uh, uh, various instructors that they didn't need anymore, and they would send it off to TriTech. And TriTech had this huge library of um, you know training manuals and things like that that. I doubt very many other people did. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to the next one. As I said, the lockdown of all portals from negative 100 to positive 100 never occurred. So then the creation of the IDSS to survey all portals in that range to prevent unnecessary death and injury to IDETs, international exploration teams. So, I mean, we know that now that the original IDET team you know, was out there and they were trying very desperately to put together, you know, more teams. When do you think that there was, you know, enough team members, you know, teams itself that they could say, hey, we're going to have one group whose only job is to go out and uh, take the readings off of the um, control pile on outside of a portal and maybe send a, uh, a robot through to take pictures and just fill in some basic information so that uh, the international authority, the IDA, uh, part of the UN, could say, yeah, this is the one we want to explore next. These other ones don't look very interesting. Let's go here next. Send the team there. Because you had, you know, Team One, which was Gordon Conrad, Sierra Tanumi, and Wei Lei going around exploring all these portals. Meanwhile, back on Earth, you know, the few crystal keys they had, they're trying to find more and more fringeworthy. Right. I would say easily year two, year three, they'd be able to do that, what you were mentioning. It would take them a couple okay. years to yeah. get these people together, train them get them familiar. And, and remember, a lot of the training was on the fly. It's like, okay, maybe some gun training, maybe some diplomacy training, some driving training. Okay. And there's Survival the portal theory. have at it, you know? Yeah. 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 Alice. Yeah. The Alice Springs facility. Yeah. We normally said the Alice Spring thing took like six months. Isn't that what boot camp used to be before, you know, they, because these people were literally going out there and I mean, they were all Earth had to explore this grand thing. So they wanted these people as trained sufficiently. They wouldn't send them out if they weren't, you know, <laughs> safe. You know, I mean, there's a decent chance of them yeah. coming back. You know, you want to, they all had to have at least basic first aid and, 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 and be able to shoot a weapon well and be able to survive, you know, in, in hostile environments and uh, do basic, uh, Vehicle repair, you know, even though you know, as a character you would make up characters with these various skills, you know, really, some you'd have to be sure that at least one person on the team was able to, you know, not strip down a vehicle, but at least like fix a a, a, a broken oil pan or a fuel line clog or you know things, you know, uh, even a, a patch of radiator, 
stuff that could be done by somebody without having to rip the engine out. Otherwise, you know, yeah. and I think that's also one reason why they wouldn't have gone very far in the first couple of years because without them knowing that they'd be able to send out more people, finding more people, because originally they, they didn't know how many people that was only one of 100,000. They didn't have any statistic like that. To them, it seemed almost impossible to find new people. So, yeah. So I, I think that um, I think you're right. I think that probably anywhere before uh, before the, fir the first year, in other words, 12 months, would be like the absolute minimum before that would happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and maybe two years. Because most, when we look at the, the storyline of when they were finding various worlds, the Victorians and the, you know, all, all the, the, what were called the fringe-worthy races in the book, which are basically alternate versions, uh, where they were just basically cultures that had grown up on an alternate yeah. earth with the primary cultures on that world. The, the, the Mixie was one of the few rare, different ones because they were a, true aliens. They were uh, humanoid yeah. spiders. At the time, which was the 80s, we were really afraid that uh, we were going to have an ecological disaster about that time. I remember, you know, every day, uh, you know, having the uh, the pollution index being one of the things that they showed on the news every day and saying, people who live in this area of Pittsburgh, you know, don't go out. You know, if you have asthma, you may need to, you know, seek medical aid. I mean, we were afraid it was going to get so much worse than that. And there were a lot of novels written about, you know, echo uh, apocalypses at the time. So, uh, the, you know, the, the spiders, you know, the, uh, uh, they were the arachnids, I should say. They were basically what would have happened if we had kept on going that direction. They were still surviving, but they lived in a... Uh, Oh, you know, a, a hugely polluted world. It was kind of like uh, Springfield, you know, in, uh, on, on the show, uh, uh, The Simpsons. Oh, the Simpsons. You know, all the pollution and all the bad things that they have. That was pretty much their world. They were like, you know, we we're fine. You know, we can survive it. You know, so therefore, you know, we'll just because they were spiders and they had queens. You know, they were able to adapt to the increasing amounts of poison that were in their environment. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they didn't have any democracies on their world. So <laughs> it's like, you know, if we lose 100,000 workers and the society keeps on rolling, that's, that's a price they were willing to pay. So it's, uh, it, it was kind of a, that was one of the things you could do in Fringeworthy is you could take all of your worst nightmares as to what could happen in our world and push it to the absolute limit and that would be a world you got to go explore that's one reason why in the latest edition of, uh, which is still the D20 we basically changed it from a particular date Richard wanted, he always wanted to create a future timeline with actual years and I kept advising him against it because I said you know we keep passing those dates Richard just say French discovery plus three years, you know, and that way when people keep playing your game as the years roll on, it's always going to be three years from that time based on whatever campaign you're running. And you can set it whenever you wanted it to. So he, he never seemed happy with that, though. 
But he did if I, he did agree to do it. Says we basically forced him to by handing him the uh, yeah yeah handing him the actual <laughs> uh, document of the next edition. He could have edited it out, I suppose, but he he didn't. So the next thing was the creation of the ring motors. Now this was a uh, an idea I came up with in, in Infinite Crossroads. That was the fringeworthy newsletter that I started. I said, there's got to be ways of using this these rings that are spinning um, and or that grab onto things and pull them uh, and to, to provide power uh, to a base that might be set up right outside a portal. You couldn't actually use it. Uh, well, this particular idea would not work inside the portal uh, because there was really no place to attach it to. Uh, but it was it was worked really well if he went out to a world because the idea was is that whenever you touch something to uh, uh, the black interface of the portal, it would grab it and start pulling it through. It only pulled it through at sixteenth of an inch per second, but it pulled it at like six hundred megatons of pressure. So what you could do is you could put uh, you could like you know put a well-anchored pylon on the outside of it and attached to it a really stepped-up, you know, um, a gearing system. You could run it through uh, the the wire. You could run it through that, bring it back at a different location in the portal to and and loop it around the uh, uh, the the control pylon and 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 it would basically just continue to rotate. Because it'd be pulling it through, it'd be pulling it back at the same time, and then you could put a load onto that wire, and voila, you had tons and tons of mechanical energy that you could then use to drive uh, generators. You could drive lathes and shops and pumps and anything else you might want to do. I don't know if anybody ever used the idea, <laughs> but we did. But it was one of the, the ideas we did. So uh, I always thought that would be something that they would invent almost immediately. I mean, it does seem pretty obvious. I think if a fringeworthy person throws the, the cable through, it's going to transit. Right. But if you, I mean, considering the number of non-fringeworthy scientists studying this thing. Yeah. Someone's going to come up. It's almost day one, I would assume. Like as soon as the, you get that first scientific team, yeah, because you grab onto it, you yank against it, you can't hold it; it'll pull you through. Yeah, I figured that would honestly that would probably have been discovered before Team One even transited the first time. Yeah, it might have. So that so the Team One might have actually, uh, even though when we wrote up the the very stories of T1, they didn't have such a device. I could see them basically provide us. Because, I mean, you do have to do attach it to something, okay? I mean, you have to at least go run it out and attach it to a tree, or you have to dig a hole and pour some concrete and put a post in and att to attach the, the uh, gearing thing, you know, on the other side. Uh, it's pretty easy to attach it to the, uh, the pylon on, on the... Uh, uh, the, the fringe path side. My question about that is if you're on the path, would that still work? Because if if you're on the path, it's assuming you're fringe worthy. If you throw that cable through, won't it transit back to real space? You throw it through the portal, the portal's going to pull it along if you don't keep feeding it through. It's now on a world. You then take it, put it through this loop, 
and then take it back to another spot. Oh, that's right. That, okay, yeah, now I remember, yeah. And see, and that's how you get the continuous ring thing going, because until the end of it goes through, it's going to keep pulling. And now as you connect the two ends together, it'll never stop pulling. So you just have to keep them apart. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it was a little kludgy uh, because of the fact that, you know, it's going up and over a ring because the rings were not on the ground. They were on the ground. Actually, uh, you could take this through because all the, the rings... Uh, the portals on the French pass had ramps going up to them. You could actually take this down below where you would normally go through the portal. But that would be very weird because, as you know, when you go through the portal on the other side, if it isn't uh, a full ring station, you're actually coming out at ground level. So this thing that you might be slipping in on your side is actually coming out next to you <laughs> on the other side. But whatever. It was, it was fun to do. Uh, nobody else had ever, had ever thought of it. So uh, I got to say I actually invented a, a, a weird science device. The second idea uh, I came up with was the vacuum motor. Off the portals, you went like 90 feet, and then there was no air. And, uh, and then you went, uh, and if you went another 47 feet, then everything disappeared into a matter-energy you know, interface. Like It was basically the end of reality that was making up these fringe paths. And it was also true on the fringe, on the fringe pathways, the roadways. Uh, so I said to myself, well, if you, ha if you were able to take a, a pole and push it out that far, and you had like, you know, something that's like, you know, those, those wind um, speed indicators where the wind blows and it has a cup, and it catches the wind and it goes around. I said, if you had something like that, except it was a closed container, but as it moved into the area where it was, there was like no, no air, where it was vacuum, it would open a valve and then the, the, the air would jet out, okay? And then it would, uh, and that would force it, give it, you know, thrust in the direction you wanted it to go in that circular motion. And then when it came back in, uh, it would close up before it got before it got back to the interface, it would close back up. It would move into the atmosphere, and then it would uh, you'd open up another valve, and the air would rush in to the uh, into the chamber. But because it was basically sucking in, it would actually be pulling itself now along, and you'd get double thrust from those two places. And if you put a whole bunch of these things in a circle, then you'd actually get something that was generating rotating thrust. And you could, again, you could drive a, uh, a motor, you could drive uh, fans. On the French pads, of course, there you can't have electricity, but you can have things that run off of mechanical energy, like pumps. You know, if you want to shower, uh, if, you, uh, uh, if you needed to, like, you know, uh, have a lathe, a machine shop to fix your car or, or do any kind of work that was safer. You didn't want to build something, all the parts, build it out on the fringe, on the world because it might be a little dangerous out there. You could come back here and cut, you know, do things that you need to like cut stuff and sand and all. Basically, you could, you could power a wood shop that way, okay? You could also use it okay. if, you, if the world was a world where it was bad air. You could use it to pump run a pump 
and pump the air from the French pass into into air canisters, and therefore you'd have air tanks. You could refill your air tanks. Because otherwise, you'd be sitting there on the platform running your diesel-powered engines, which were the only ones that could operate without electricity, and you'd be sitting there in a haze of diesel fume all the time. This is a completely pure, pollutionless engine that's providing you with the mechanical power you need in order to do the things you wanted to do. And it, and it can be constructed by anybody. So I actually thought that, you know, as a GM, that I might actually have them run into other fringe explorers who had these things as if they had discovered how to do these things because I did never thought of it. And, and for example, the vacuum motor, I could easily think that I did never thought of that one. Yeah, because that's that like air atmosphere to vacuum membrane is is hard. It is well, it's really more of a timing thing. You have to basically have valves that turn on and off, much like in a car engine. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. You know, like you have a camshaft. Right, but on the French path itself, when you're going from you know one psi or one earth, fourteen pounds per square inch, sea level earth atmosphere to complete vacuum, like. In a snap, no, there's no gradient to it. It's a, it's basically a sheer interface. Right. So yeah, that's really the only yeah, because nobody would think of that until you encountered that. Yeah, everybody was trying to stay away from that. That was a bad place to be. Nobody wanted to do that, except people who wanted like for any reason they actually wanted vacuum. They'd like shove something over there. Okay, it's got lots of vacuum in it now, so let's close it up. Yeah. And pull it back, but they never, you know, they never wanted. I, I mean, I, I had a couple of players who just loved to do the science stuff, and they would go and do all kinds of stuff. And one of them even lost their feet by getting too close to the uh, the interface. Jeez. Don't do it yourself. You send the guinea pig. You send Harvey. They were letting themselves out on a rope, and the rope was a little more stretchy than they realized when it got out to be ninety feet. You know, so hundred fifty feet. And they were just like, you know, they, they, they just kind of launched themselves off thinking that they would just pull up short. And they, they did pull up short, but a little bit further than they thought. Not as short as one would like. <laughs> no, because they, they wanted to be real close to it, too. But so they thought they'd done the measurements and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, <laughs> oops. That makes me wonder, because uh, we still got others to talk about, but that does make me wonder if there could be any use of the um in uh like the matter to energy interface at the very edge there if that could be used other than just like trash disposal yeah getting rid of trash and it turns out it doesn't even get rid of trash i mean it does get rid of trash but there's a chance that it might actually be shunted off into another universe uh, oh that's great yeah and yeah yeah so you're <laughs> dumping atomic waste you know or whatever you know um uh, botulism or something terrible. Uh, so I don't know when, when when that would have been invented. It might all, it might be one of those GM introduced because he just wanted it in your game because nobody will ever think of it. What was even more like that was the fi- the final one, which was the gravity motor, and John swore that was black magic. He swore that that violated at least three or four laws of physics, and he was right. Because there is no place in our universe except except at a black hole. Well, not even then. 
okay? Because it's not it's not a shear at the black hole. It's just the place where gravity is so high that light can't get back out. But you know, it, it along the fringe pass, there was a literally sh uh, um, gravity shear. There was gravity on the fringe pass and on the fringe platforms, and right off of them, zero gravity. Okay, and so I said to myself, well, if you put a rotating ball or cylinder, okay, right at that interface where half of it was inside the uh, gravity area and half of it was outside, then the side that was inside would be pulled down by gravity and the other stuff wouldn't, and it would rotate. It would rotate forever. It, it, this is like the cat that lands on its feet, but butter always lands you know, buttered bread always lands butter side down. So you strap yeah. a piece of buttered bread, buttered side up on the back of a cat, and it'll just spin forever. Nothing will hit the ground. Same principle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think maybe John used that example <laughs> as to why he thought my idea couldn't possibly work. <laughs> the I'm pretty sure that sounded familiar because I remember reading that that infinite crossroads and 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 then later hearing that reference in some way. Yeah. So and and what and my idea was is that if you made like a really long cylinder, okay, that was really heavy, like made out of stone, or what I did was I had plastic filled with water, so you could pull the water in, and, and if you wanted, and and pump the water and pump it back out into it, and so you could have this thing as long as you want and rotating and it would provide thrust so you could actually use it to drive your vehicles as far long and far as you ever wanted to go along the french pass and uh, uh john didn't like that idea he thought a better idea would be uh having them two big giant uh discs heavy discs uh, that uh, like flywheels that were on basically uh on either side of the fringe pass, which worked in the beginning because the fringe pass were only eight foot wide. So most of your, so this was about the width of your vehicle. So the way you think of it is basically take two, two coins, like two dimes, and just slide them slightly apart where the center of each one would be basically equivalent to the outside of each vehicle. So they'd overlap each other and let them turn, and that would generate the force we're talking about, and you'd be able to uh, 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 use that to drive you along. And whenever you went onto a platform, of course, you're not at the edge, you went through a portal, and you just have to coast with the mechanical energy that's still stored in that flywheel to the next portal. Once you go through, you line up on the edges again, the gravity, the gravity shear starts putting energy into the, the spinning of those those flywheels, and it, it would just drive you along. And I, I imagine big, enormous uh, fringe trains bringing uh, millions of tons of products across the fringe pass because in those days we didn't understand that there was a big system. We thought everything went along the fringe pass. We thought that was the only way to go from world to world. Oh, yeah. See, all that developed over the 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 the... the well, basically the the twenty years, you know, of uh, of development of the of the game, uh, and you know, lots of things were just were revealed as secrets of the fringe paths as time went on, because you know, which was literally us thinking it up as we went along and writing it down. 
I always wanted someone to, you know, make because uh, I wasn't good at that. Make me models of these vehicles. Now that we have CAD, you know, the maker machines now, I might actually put one of these things together at some point. But I always wanted to do that. I wanted to have a big car like that. Looking, because everyone who saw one when I wrote did the description says, "Oh, you, you twin nacelles. It, you, <laughs> you've got the Enterprise on the fringe pass." <laughs> Jeez. And I'm like, "No, no, it's nothing like that. <laughs> Just looks like that." I mean, in some ways, everybody it, it, they they truly were uh, repelled by the idea because <laughs> it violated their their mental concepts. I remember. I remember um, one of my fringeworthy campaigns. I, I did use that because, yeah, it was early days when it was still only a like eight foot wide path. Yeah. So yeah, one of my teams definitely had one of those little uh, gravity motor driven scooter uh, cargo sleds or whatever. Right. So because of this, I always, you know, it, this was another one of those things where if you wanted the gravity motor to be in your game. It either it had to be invented by somebody, and you just decided when somebody figured it out, because there was no, you know, reasonable way of making this assumption. Because every time people said, "Well, I'm going to have a vehicle that runs on the fringe pass," they always used some weird, you know, it somehow sucks power off the fringe pass or something, you know. And Richard even kind of led to this because well, he had the trains. Which ran on on uh, on good thoughts, I guess. You know, nobody knew what they ran on, and he even talked about how when you went at high speeds, the road surface of the fringe paths themselves would form a herringbone pattern to give you better traction. So when you tried to slow down, you could slow down very rapidly, even though you were going across what should be a completely smooth surface that you'd slide like crazy on. Uh, you didn't. It was always very, very good surface. It is because the fringe paths were, in fact, reactive to the people on instead of being completely passive as we originally thought they were. Nobody was, you know, everyone always thought about some kind of super science kind of concept instead of just basically saying, here's this weird, you know, interface, this gravity shear. How can we make that do something for us? So, you know. Mostly, they they saw it as a means of, uh, of 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 having fun by peeing into it. <laughs> that Jeez. is one of the reasons I, I I did did tend to enjoy like the early campaign where I, I ran um, like team two or you know an, another early team that still a big part of the campaign was just figuring out how does this whole fringe path thing work. That's why I wrote the um, I'm working on an alternate uh, campaign start based on a completely separate world from earth prime uh-huh. just again. So I can, they, I can have a team one that has no idea what's going on. Sure. And it was funny. Usually when I, when I would run the campaigns, whenever I do fringe worthy, it was always, I never did earth prime. It would always be, I'd set up a campaign on whatever earth would be in the portals books and they'd be finding the portals for the first time. And of course it was a lot of the same players in different campaigns. So I'm just, you know, looking at my table like, don't you bring that up from the last campaign, you know. But I would always do where it would still be, they get to role play that feeling of excitement and apprehension. Okay, I'm walking through this, what's on the other side, you know. 
I would always do it like that. I don't think I've ever run a fringe-worthy game based on Earth Prime. And it would just always be somewhere out on uh, some alt or some prime, and they would always... It, and to get that that new portal smell, so to speak. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I understand. And especially if you want them to run into Earth Prime later and join up with IDENT. Yeah. So it's uh, because you know, that's what it, that's I mean, that's what it would have been with with the uh, Victorians if they if Richard had said that they were already a very strong expeditionary group themselves. You know, they 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 might have, you know, I always figured that they would just join up, and it was only later on that we came to the conclusion that no, they they would act as their own individual group. They they didn't see any. They would have no reason to think that Earth Prime was better at it than they were. I mean, with all that you know, you know, British superiority. You know, the, the sun never shines on the British Empire. Why would they think anybody was was not was any better than them at anything? This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. This is Jay Libby. The gamer generation is you. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Mark saying good night and good luck. This is Eric. It's all about having fun with friends. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license no commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.